Good morning. It's such a joy to see you all here. And we are just one week away from Christmas. It's just unbelievable. Uh, the message this morning may look like a Good Friday sermon. So we are in uh, Christmas season, uh, but the chapter before us is a very important chapter. It speaks about Christ's death. Uh, so the sermon will be reflecting on the necessity for Jesus uh, to die on the cross. So before we open up, let's uh, approach God in prayer. Let's ask God for grace. Gracious and Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you, Lord. We thank you for your mercies. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your Son, Jesus. We thank you that, Lord, he came down on this earth and dwelt among us. We thank you that he lived a perfect life. And, Lord, he died so that we, Lord, can be reconciled to you. And this morning, as we come to study your word, we pray that you would give us wisdom, understanding. And, Lord, also pray that you would help me to preach your word faithfully for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me ask you a question. At Grace Point, we love socials. That is one of the distinct things among the Grace Point Church, compared to other churches. We have something called CG Social. So have you ever considered Rookwood Cemetery as a location for social? Or have you considered taking one of your... Uh, friends or relatives who are visiting Australia uh, on a day trip to the cemetery. It's a convenient location, right? Just next door. <laughs> it's close to the railway station. Uh, it's spacious. Uh, Well-maintained as well. And there's a nice flower shop just outside there. You can buy a bouquet. Give it to your friends and family. Right? But there is something about it, right? We don't like to speak about death. There's something evil about it. There's something negative about it. The word death itself brings to our mind something which is bad, ugly, it's destructive. It's not natural in one sense. Though it is natural, it is certain thing, we all will die. But in other sense, it is not natural. Because God did not create us to die. But God created us to live, to multiply, to be fruitful. And hence it looks unnatural. In India, 20 years back, 25 years back, uh, in Australia it is very common. We have insurance for everything. Even your mobile is insured, right? <laughs> Even your house is insured. But in India, 20 years back, when the life insurance company wanted to start business, uh, they prepared the salesmen uh, how to go and do door knocking. And basically the salesman would just go and door knock the house and would say that we are from life insurance company and we are selling or we are giving this death cover basically. You pay a premium every month and in case one of your family members uh, has accident or dies, then you get a lump sum money. But the strange thing was, the moment they said that one of your loved ones, if he dies, 
the people got so angry and furious they said how dare you speak about death of our family member how dare you speak like that how dare you wish that he die early and they were completely shocked how do how do we sell then this life insurance and i think most of you from asian culture understand this thing so death is basically something very ugly and destructive and we don't like to speak about that but in the chapter here before us uh, we have this death of jesus and this act basically is what reconciles us back to god jesus death saves us such a ironic thing jesus who is the king of kings lord of lords his death saves us how can a death of a king bring salvation how can it save that is what is the beauty of christianity the death of jesus saves us when mary was pregnant the angel came and said you shall give him give him a name jesus you shall name him jesus because he will save his people so jesus basically came to save his people and even at his birth this was prophesied that he would die to bring salvation but the question is was his death necessary was jesus death absolutely necessary see it was easy for god god could easily fix the world god could easily bring back everything together after there was fall after there was a sin in the garden the god who created heavens and earth god who created earth out of nothing ex nihilo that is out of nothing this god who is powerful to create he can easily bring back everything and fix it together it's not difficult for god he could easily manipulate all the atoms because he is the one who created the atoms but the problem is very great because the problem is the problem of sin the problem that we face and the problem that god faces is this problem of sin because we are sinners and as pastor elliot was explaining to us that god is perfect god is holy god is just god is righteous he is incorruptible judge and he cannot leave sin unpunished if he is to be incorruptible judge he has to punish sin and this god is not like other gods there are so many other gods in the world they are like humans they do not have power they can be bribed they are not holy but the god that we worship is a god who is holy who is perfect who is just is a just judge and he must punish sin and as you are looking to this mark's gospel we have been reminded time and time again that judgment awaits god in his word has made it very clear to us there is a judgment day even if you look in chapter 14 last week we looked at chapter 14 verse 62 it says 
I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. So he's talking about his second coming, that he'll come on the clouds of heaven. And his second coming is not coming to save people, he's coming to judge basically. Judgment is something which is not a nice word in present day and age, right? <laughs> Even in the, some of your school teachers, uh, at the school if the kid behaves badly, <laughs> there's no more capital punishment. You just uh, talk to the kid and you say, use your words, not your uh, hands. Or you say, consider your actions. How would you react next time? So we have removed this capital punishment completely. So this capital punishment looks something weird to us. The present day and age that we live, punishment is rare. But judgment is everywhere, you see. We get angry when we see corrupt politicians. When you read about corrupt politicians in the newspaper, we get very angry. Because we somewhere desire justice. When we see strong exploiting the poor, or the rich exploiting the poor, or somebody who is strong bullying, we get angry because we, we want to see justice done. And if you've been following the news, you know what's happening in Iran, right? There's thousands and thousands of females there, they're protesting against the government because there was this lady by name Mahasa Amini. She was caught by the moral police there in Iran because she, her, she did not wear the hijab properly and they tortured her in the custody and she died. You know, the people are angry because they want justice. But some people... They don't believe in God. They don't believe there is something like judgment day. So they want to see judgment happen now, here. And we love to watch crime series, right? We watch Law and Order and other stuff. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for the end when we see the culprit being caught and punished and sent in the prison because we want to see justice done. But when we are the culprits, we don't like justice. It's only when we are the victims. And in one sense, I think we are hardwired for justice. Somehow God has put in us that wiring. And we, we seek justice. And in one sense, why God has put that wiring in us that we love justice, that we seek justice, is because... He wants us to know that one day we too will stand before Him. He will be the judge. He'll be standing before His throne. And that's why God has put this wiring in us so that we know this judgment day is waiting. So was it absolutely necessary for Christ to die. So let's uh, dig into the passage here. We'll come back to that question. So turn with me to verse 1. 
It says, very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. And so they bound Jesus, led him away and handed him over to Pilate. So this is not some new meeting they are uh, coming together, but this is a continuation of the meeting which is happening in chapter 14. See, last week you heard that Jesus was arrested and then there's this midnight trial. The chief priests and elders gathered together. But the midnight trial was illegal. They're not supposed to have a midnight trial. But then they gathered because all they wanted was to put Jesus to death. They were trying to find evidence against him so that they can just present him to the governor. The thing is that the Jewish council did not have the right to put anybody to death. Because at this point in time what was happening is that there was this Roman Empire. So they, owned, they had the power to send anybody to prison or to execute a person. The Jews did not have that power. It's like if one of, I'll take my own example. It's like I commit some crime, but Pastor Eugene has no right to send me to prison. Even though he's a senior pastor, he can't send me to prison because it is the government of this land which alone has that power to send me to prison. In the same way, the Jews did not have that power to send Jesus uh, to prison or to execute capital punishment. It was only the Roman Empire. And the pilot here is the governor, is the representative of this Roman government. So they present Jesus to Pilate and they bring charges against him. Mark doesn't give us the charges, but turn with me to Luke's Gospel. Luke gives us the charges that the people brought against Jesus so that they could convince Pilate to arrest and to execute Jesus. If you turn to Luke 23 in verse 2 and says, And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. That is the first charge. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. That was second charge. And the final charge, they say that he claims to be Messiah, a king. He's claiming to be the king. And that is what draws attention of Pilate. Because he is not concerned about blasphemy. He is not concerned about the religious law of Jews. All his concern is that he wants to maintain peace in this land. And if any person rises up, if any person rises against the Roman Empire and claims to be the king, that is what concerns him. So he asks Jesus this question, are you the king of Jews? And Jesus says, you have said so. Or in a sense, Jesus is saying, yes, I am. Jesus is giving an affirmative answer here and saying he is the king. But then, in one sense, Jesus is saying that you don't understand the kind of king I am. Because my kingdom is not of this earth. My kingdom is not about establishing my rule here with my soldiers. His kingdom is spiritual kingdom. And that's what in John's gospel, John says in chapter 18, where Jesus responds and says, My kingdom is not of this world. 
If it was of this world, then my servants would fight. So Jesus is saying that, yes, I am the king, but my kingdom is not the kind of kingdom you are thinking of. Or I am not the kind of king you are thinking of. Because which king will lay down his life for his people to be saved? Which king would stand silently before the judge? And Jesus here, when they bring charges against him, he is silent. Jesus in verse 5 says, But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. And I think this is the pro- fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is what is prophesies about Jesus' death, about the way that people will hang him on the cross, about the flogging. And Jesus basically is the sheep who is silent, who is brought before his shearers, but he's silent. And Pilate is amazed, basically. Pilate, think, Pilate thinks that he has the right and he has the power to set free or to send Jesus to jail. But he does not realize that the Father's will was for Jesus to be arrested and put on the cross. But Pilate tries. He wants to set Jesus free. And Mark again here does not record this thing. It's recorded in Matthew's Gospel. Pilate's wife has his dream and she comes and tells to Pilate, have nothing to do with this righteous man. And Pilate basically washes off his hand and he says, the blood of this innocent man is not on my head in a sense. But then there was this custom during this uh, festival it's like the Christmas bonus you get at the workplace, right? So there was this custom to release a prisoner. And there were two people here basically arrested. Jesus and the other guy was Barabbas, who was a murderer. And Pilate wants to release Jesus. So he asked, whom should I release? The chief priest, they stir up the people and they all say, release Barabbas to us. And Pilate says, what should I do with this king? They say, crucify him. And they shout loudly and they say, crucify this guy. So you see here, Jesus, the innocent, has been arrested and he's been crucified, whereas the one who is guilty, Barabbas, has been released. So in one sense, Jesus is here the substitute. Jesus is the one here replacing Barabbas on that cross. But it does not end here, the trial. The trial continues in a sense. The soldiers now get involved. They basically is shocking that these soldiers, they have nothing against Jesus. But they just want to, it's like a, they have this mock trial in a sense. They want to mock Jesus. They put on him this royal purple robe. The purple robe symbolizes authority. And they put on the crown of thorns on his head. Because Jesus claimed to be the king, they're now kind of playing this, they're enacting this drama in a sense. They're mocking at him, you claim to be the king. And they're putting this purple robe on him, they're putting this thorn and they're giving him this staff as a scepter. And they stuck him, they spit on him. And they 
mockingly they bow before him and they say hail the king of jews they did not really mean they did not really acknowledge that he is a king but they are just mocking in a sense here and then we see that jesus is even flogged basically the flogging was basically a standard procedure to punish a criminal but flogging is not like just taking a whip and just slowly just hitting the person no this flogging was very cruel way basically the whip had leather and bones attached to it so whenever they would flog that person the flesh would basically chunk of the flesh would basically come up, come along with that whip the jews had a tradition of flogging 39 times 40 minus 1 but the romans did not have any such standard so they flogged jesus they mocked him and then they crucify him basically it was basically the tradition that whoever was the culprit he would carry that cross that beam that cross wooden beam but jesus he here is basically weak and powerless in a sense he's been flogged so they find this person simon who carries the cross but crucifixion again was very humiliating the pictures that we see of cross they're not actually the true figure the person was actually hanged naked and he was hanged in the public place so everybody passing by would look at that person and would be mocking at him would be basically looking at his shame that is how the crucifixion was the pictures that we have they cover up but jesus was even hanged naked and we see here the people are hurling insults at him the saints save yourself this man he prophesied that he will rebuild the temple in 3 days and they're saying come down and save yourself and even the f- chief priests they come and tell him come down from the cross that we may see and believe see we read of the temptations of jesus in matthew's gospel right but which was the last temptation of jesus which was the last temptation of jesus i think this was the last temptation here while he was hanging on that cross the chief priests come and say come down one last time just prove to us that you are son of god come down from that cross and we will believe you we will accept you as a king we'll accept you as the messiah but jesus knew very well that if he has to save us he cannot save himself because he cannot save himself and save us at the same time because as long as he's hanging on that cross as long as he does not try to save himself he's taking our sins in his body 
so that we can be saved. But if he decided to save himself, if he decided to come down from that cross, we all would be damned basically. Our sins would never be forgiven. Jesus on that cross, he cries out. He says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is basically again a fulfillment of Psalm 22. See, we see the fulfillment of the prophecies in the Old Testament here in this chapter. We do not have time to go through all the prophecies in the Old Testament. Let me just quickly read Isaiah 53. I think that would be sufficient for this moment. In Isaiah 53, he says in verse 3, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we, be, and we held him in low esteem. So like one from whom people hide their faces, basically because he was flogged, he was tortured in a sense. So his face basically was disfigured and that's what this prophecy is, that people basically hide from looking at him. In verse 7 he says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. And we see that fulfillment there as well. But what I want to draw your attention is to verse 10. Cross, see, was not an accident. It was not just by chance. It says in verse 10 that it was the Lord's will to crush him. It was Lord's will. It was divine will of the Lord. This is what was planned and purpose even before the creation of the world. That Jesus would be crucified. That Jesus would pay the price for our sins. So cross is not an accident. It's a divine decree basically. It's the divine will of the Lord. And that is what we should ask. Why? Why was it necessary for Christ to die? And as we look in this sermon, we look that, that God is holy. He's perfect and just. But the problem is we are sinners. And we can't stand in His presence. We can't be reconciled unless the problem of sin is dealt with. Just think you're driving in your nice fancy car on the road. You're going at 80 or 100k speed. And just for a fraction of a second, you look at your mobile phone or your eyes or turn away from the road, and you hit a car. Now there are only two options at that point. Either you pay the price to fix that car, or the other person absorbs the cost. 
See, you can't say to the person, mind, forget it. Just let it go. Just chill, mind, it's fine. You can't say that. Because somebody has to pay the price to fix that car. You can't just walk away. The same thing is in our relationship with God because this sin has to be dealt with. We just can't walk away from that. And God is a just God. He's not a corrupt judge who can just say, okay, forget about that. Because he's an incorruptible judge, he has to deal with that sin, the problem of sin. And because we are sinners, we are born sinners, we cannot keep the law perfectly. Hence there has to be somebody who will absorb that cost of sin. And Jesus is that substitute. Jesus is the one. He says, I will absorb that penalty. I will pay that penalty. And Jesus basically does that on the cross by dying for you and for me. He absorbs that penalty of death. But this substitute has to be a perfect sinless person. He cannot be anybody. And that's what when we study the Old Testament, when we read the sacrifices, when we read Leviticus, Numbers, we just skip it because we, we don't get it. Why all these sacrifice, sacrifices? Why all these regulations? Because God was telling to those people in the Old Testament that I am going to provide this sinless lamb. I am going to provide this substitute who is going to pay for your sins once and for all. These animal sacrifices are not going to satisfy God's wrath or his justice. So every time the people in the Old Testament came to temple sacrificing, it was a reminder for them. And the same thing we do when we come to the Lord's table. Each month when we come to the Lord's table here, we are reminded of Christ's death. On the cross, you are reminded of his precious blood which was shed on the cross. Because the scriptures tell us that without remission of, there is no remission of sin without shedding of blood. Unless the blood of that lamb is not shed on the cross, there is no forgiveness. So the blood has to be shed. And the blood has to be of the substitute who was the perfect sinless person. And this is how God purposed, this is how God planned to bring reconciliation. Because he has created this heaven and earth. It is his world. And hence he makes the rule how we can be reconciled to him. We do not make the rules how we can reconcile with God. There are people in the world who are seeking salvation, who are seeking moksha. They do not know how to be reconciled to God. They turn to their gurus, their leaders, and they tell them to walk on the fire, the coals of fire. They tell them fast for one month. They tell them to go to this temple. They tell them offer five times prayer, go to this Makkah. And they try everything. But they do not find that peace with God. Because God 
has ordained only this way to be reconciled to him through the death of his son through the shedding of the blood and Christ is the one who takes the penalty of sin Christ is our substitute he is the one who takes and that's the reason why it was absolutely necessary for Christ to die it was absolutely necessary because there was no other way by which you and i can be reconciled and this was prophesied in the old testament this is what the jews were waiting for but they completely missed jesus is the propitiation is the atonement and that is the beauty of christianity you see that god himself provides this lamb you and i do not have to go and inspect the lamb to find out it is perfect it is without any sin we don't have to go to the market places each sunday because god himself has provided this lamb every other religion people bring offerings they think that through their offerings they think that they can contribute in some way to their salvation but god himself provides the lamb he himself provides the substitute and as we celebrate in one week the christmas we celebrate god who came down to earth he becomes a man so that he can save us he does not live in palaces he lived in a stable he was a carpenter and this god man is what we need and this morning let me ask you have you peace with god do you have this confidence that your sins are forgiven if you are trusted in jesus if you believe the jesus of the scriptures if you believe jesus is the messiah the christ the anointed one if you believe that he died on the cross for your sins he was that substitute if you are repented of your sin then you can have this assurance this morning that your sins are forgiven that you are reconciled to god but if you are not sure if you do not know whether you have this peace with god then let me encourage you this morning if the spirit of god is working in you this morning yield to the spirit do not resist believe in this son of god repent of your sins so repent means to turn from your sins turn to god i don't know how many of you follow cricket i don't know how many you love cricket i'm not sure i don't know if i've given this example before but you see 
is fascinating to watch these fast bowlers who come they just run coming to the crease they they ball with such a high speed like 90 kper i think or something like that like we have like people like afridi who can ball such and the batsman is like the poor batsman does not have even a fraction of a second to look at where the ball is pitching and to and to decide whether to hit it or leave it so the bowler is coming with such a which is running and is coming towards the crease and is bowling with such a high speed and the batsman basically has fraction of a second but if he's a good batsman he will connect to the ball and he will swing his bat and the moment he swings his bat what happens the ball which is coming towards him at high speed it changes direction it goes into the opposite direction this ball which is coming at 100 kilometers per hour the moment it touches the bat it goes in different direction and that is what repentance in one sense is that we who are sinners we are marching in our sin we are living in our sin we are marching towards this but the moment that we encounter jesus the moment we come to believe in him the moment we ask for forgiveness there's a change in direction we turn away from our sins and we turn to god if you are not sure if your sins are forgiven or not let me encourage you take time ask jesus is more than willing is willing even before we come to him is ready to forgive us because he is a god who loves us and that's why we see in the gospel as we are working through jesus wants us so many times he gave us warning time and time again because he loves us and he wants us to have this eternal life he does not want us to go to hell but he wants us to have this eternal life he wants us to be saved because he is a god who is a loving god let me just conclude by reading one verse from isaiah 53 but he was pierced for our transgression he was crushed for our iniquities the punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed amen